For the better part of two decades, climate change has been an unavoidable topic in both the public forum and in nature itself. One hard-hit target of global warming is Utah's own Great Salt Lake, which has been shrinking due to recent droughts. Buzzfield reporter Reed sat down with experts and advocates for the Great Salt Lake to get a better understanding of the current state of the lake and just how important it is to Utah's way of life. Utah's Great Salt Lake shrinks to unsustainable levels amid a decade-long mega drought. Is it too late to save the diminishing Great Salt Lake? Great Salt Lake is shrinking fast, and scientists demand action before it becomes a toxic dustbin. As many Utah locals know, the Great Salt Lake has had a substantial decrease in its overall size. Over the past few decades, the lake's depletion has become the subject of many articles, and many researchers and scientists are claiming it that without the Great Salt Lake, Utah as we know it could change. University of Utah's Dr. Kevin Perry says, as the lake shrinks, the impact is felt on a lot of different dramatic levels. So the Great Salt Lake has been shrinking due to non-sustainable excessive water diversions. And as it has been shrinking, uh, the salinity levels have been going up and we've hit several different tipping points. The first tipping point we reached was the dust emission. So as the lake uh, dried up, it exposed lake bed and that lake bed is now a source of significant dust events and dust plumes, which move into the surrounding communities. The second tipping point that we hit was the recreation one. As the lake continued to shrink, the marinas became high and dry and they had to pull all the boats from the lake. So those recreation opportunities are lost. The third tipping point that we're reaching or very close to reaching is the one where the mineral extraction industries can no longer gain access to the lake and they will have to shutter, which will cost the economy of Utah up to a billion dollars a year. And lastly, the tipping point that we're getting near now is the total ecological collapse of the food chain. As the lake has gotten saltier, the brine shrimp and the brine flies, which are the base of the food chain, are finding it increasingly difficult to reproduce. And um, their loss of habitat for the brine flies uh, is another significant problem. So as those brine shrimp and the brine flies die back, they can lead to mass starvation of the millions of birds that visit the Great Salt Lake. The Great Salt Lake is of vital importance to everyone in Northern Utah. Not only does it provide more than a billion dollars to the local economy through the mineral extraction and brine shrimp harvesting industries, it is also a hemispherically important bird migratory path and millions of birds visit the Great Salt Lake every year uh, on their journeys, and they feast upon the abundant brine flies and brine shrimp. The lake is also important for recreation opportunities. It used to be wonderful for boating and hiking and solitude and wildlife viewing and birds. And it's also contributes to our wonderful snowpack in the Wasatch Mountains. Uh, through lake effect snowstorms. The state of Utah is also home to many environmental advocacy groups who have dedicated their time to educating themselves and others about water policy issues within the state of Utah and the shrinking of the Great Salt Lake. The group Save Our Great Salt Lake was created by two local women set out to do just that. 
Chandler Rosenberg and her partner in the coalition became passionate about its conservation after hearing about the potential ecological disasters the shrinking of the lake may cause. Groups such as Rosenberg's remind us just how important our Great Lake is to Utah's way of life. So we started not really knowing what we were doing. The main thing that kind of prompted it was the Radio West. They did like a podcast series on the state and fate of the lake and talked about the toxic dust bowl, which at the time no one was talking about. We were just like, oh my God, like someone's got to say something about this. Um, So we just kind of, she has a local skincare business Uh, which has been really helpful because she has like a design team that's really helped us with the social media, which kind of we feel like is a big piece that's been missing in Mm -hmm. climate communication generally. Um, And then we just like called everyone we could think of. Most of the people interviewed on the podcast, like Bonnie Baxter from Westminster. We went out to the lake with her and she kind of showed us the microbialites and what's happening to the ecosystem. Um, And then we connected with the Utah Rivers Council. Their director, Zach Frankel, is a water policy genius, knows a lot about the solutions, but when we talked to him, he was like, oh my God, like I've struggled for years to just get people to care and get people to show up. Many scientists and experts are giving the lake only a few amount of years before it may be nearly gone. So unfortunately, the Great Salt Lake has been shrinking over the last 20 to 30 years, and it's now reached its low It's historic low. It's never been this low in the last 170 years since we started taking measurements. And that has created a host of problems. The first problem is, is that as the lake level continued to decline, the marinas where we put boats in and out of the lake dried up. And it's impossible now to put sailboats or other pleasure craft out onto the Great Salt Lake. And that's eliminated a huge recreation opportunity. As the lake has continued to shrink, it's also exposed more than 800 square miles of lake bed. And when the wind is strong and the lake bed is dry, then that exposed lake bed can now generate uh, dust plumes, which impact the local air quality in the surrounding communities. As the lake shrinks, its contribution to the lake effect snow decreases and it's getting harder and harder for the mineral extraction companies to get water to their facilities. They have to spend millions of dollars to extend their canals, make them deeper and longer so that they can still have access to the water. And unfortunately, as the lake shrinks, it gets saltier and saltier. And the southern portion of the lake right now is about 19% salt, uh, which is about six times saltier than the ocean. and At that salinity level, the brine shrimp and the brine flies, which are the base of the food chain, are having difficulty reproducing. And unfortunately, the brine flies have actually gone missing uh, just because of the salt being too high. And that has the threat of mass starvation from the millions of birds that visit the Great Salt Lake. Now, there are many reasons why this is occurring. One major reason is the water usage that our state uses for agriculture. It's like 80% of our water goes to agriculture, um, which me kind of coming from that space, I'm really sensitive to the fact that like, we do need agriculture. And in fact, we're headed for a food security disaster if we don't start growing more of our own food. But the food, what we're growing right now is not food that we're eating. It's like. And even if it is, I've been trying to figure out like how much of Utah beef, because it's primarily beef and alfalfa. Um, 
I've been trying to figure out how much of that Utah beef is even staying in Utah because people are always like, well, we need agriculture. That's kind of the argument you hear when people are like, agriculture's taking too much water. They're like, well, we're feeding Utahns. Don't you want food? But it's like alfalfa is not human food. And raising cattle doesn't seem like the most efficient way to feed people if we have to grow something that uses a lot of water and then give it to the cow that like, you know, all sorts of emissions and water use there. Um, so I don't think like some of the solutions proposed are like, let's just pay the farmers to not farm. Maybe that's good in the short term, but I think we really need to figure out a way to reduce our water use in agriculture by shifting what we grow. However, the issue doesn't just remain with farming. Dr. Perry says the state of Utah has not been responsible when it comes to its water usage. But one of the things that we can do individually is to make conscious choices about the types of landscaping that we put into our cities and towns. So most of the water that we use in the cities actually goes for landscaping use to keep our green lawns alive and the trees and the flowers and that sort of thing. And unfortunately, we live in the second driest state in the nation. We actually live in the desert, but yet we treat water like it's a commodity that's always going to be available. And it, we treat it like it's an endless uh, commodity. And that's simply not the case. As the population of Utah has increased, the demands on the water have increased as well. So unfortunately, Utahns use more water per person than any other state in the Western United States, except for Idaho. And we need to rethink our relationship with water so that we can um, adopt the practices from our other Western states where we don't value uh, green lawns to the extent uh, that we do here in Utah. And we need to uh, basically think about xeriscaping as a potential solution at the uh, city level. But have we gone too far? What needs to happen in order for us Utahns to feel safe and know that our Great Lake has become protected? What do we need to do to conserve water? So we need as many people to kind of show up and call bullshit now until the legislative session so i would say like everyone should follow save our great salt lake whether you've signed our petition and you're on the email list but we're going to be planning another rally um at the beginning of the session we need as many people there as we can get we'll also be just kind of organizing around the bills that are happening so the legislative session i guess is like the number one focus coming up um so we just need as many people we're going to be doing some probably like both online and in-person Kind of trainings for people about like okay these are the bills this is how they're helpful this is how you can talk about them this is how to contact your representatives um so just a lot of that yeah as many people to participate mm -hmm. in the session as possible dr perry agreed and added a few more ideas for the solution as well so the simple answer to what we can do to save the great salt lake is to use less water and allow more of that water to flow in the streams which include the Bear River, the Weber River, the Jordan River, and allow that water to make it to the Great Salt Lake. In order to do that, we have to make significant changes to our relationship with water, and we need to embrace conservation. Agriculture uses about 80% of the diverted water, and cities and industry uses the other 20%. And so both cities, industry, and agriculture all need to work together to conserve water 
so that we can put more water back in the lake. Short of that, the lake will continue to decline. One of the biggest things Utah locals can do is to advocate for our environment. Environmental advocacy runs deep within Utah from saving our national parks to protecting wildlife and conserving our natural resources. And as we focus our efforts on helping our Great Salt Lake, students need to equip themselves with the information and experience. If we as a generation are passionate about not only saving the lake, but as life as we know it in Salt Lake, we have to put our energy towards what matters. I interviewed a representative from the Women's Outdoor Leadership Initiative, Utah branch, also known as Woolly. Emma Taylor, a student at the University of Utah, says a stu students need to stand up for what they believe in. Students, I think we are such a group, big group in Salt Lake, and I think that we have a lot of power because of that. Um, I think it's important because if you want to keep living in Salt Lake, you're not going to be able to, realistically, you're not going to be able to do that for much longer if the whole lake bed dries up and turns into its toxic little air pollution bubble. Um, we see that bad enough already in the winters with the inversion every, or even in the summers. Um, we see it all the time, and I think we have such a cool opportunity to get involved in environmental stewardship being here at the U um, and climate advocacy and things like that. So take the opportunity while we can. Um, it's gonna be really easy, honestly, to do it right now. It might not be easier when it's too late. So starting now and making, making your little piece of difference. It's up to us students and the people of Utah to come together and help save our lake, not only to stop our delicate ecosystems from falling apart, but to keep enjoying the lives we all have here. Advocacy, both on the micro and macro level, is important. With the changing climate, people are being called into action and organizations are being created to help facilitate that. Buzz correspondent Paige Nelson sat down with Ian Lindeberry, Vice President of Salt Lake City's American Conservation Coalition chapter, to talk about how Republicans are handling climate change in our state and on a national level. We're kind of at the grassroots level here. Um, lots of trash pickups, um, organizing a couple events a year. Um, Organization is actually run entirely by college students here in Salt Lake City. So, you know, everyone's kind of busy and, you know, this isn't a paid thing. This is totally volunteer, but, you know, still happy to do it. And what would, what is the main purpose of the ACC? Yeah, so the ACC, um, like I said, was founded by Benji Backer because he saw a kind of a vacuum in terms of the conservative movement, Republican Party around environmental issues. They didn't see a lot of Republicans talking about envi the environment, climate change, issues like that, and decided to fill that void with the American Conservation Coalition started in his fraternity house back at the University of Washington. Today has grown into a national 501c3 nonprofit with, I believe, over, I think, 40 employees in total. So it's much, much bigger now than it used to be. Especially in Salt Lake, the environment um, is kind of a hot topic right now. Um, so I'm sure you know a lot about the Great Salt Lake. Can you talk a little bit about the environmental challenges that we're facing in Utah right now? Yeah, yeah. So as a lot of people know, um, Great Salt Lake is drying up at a pretty rapid rate compared to what we normally see. You see lake levels fluctuate a lot just given how shallow it is. I think at the deepest point, it's only like 14 feet deep at its deepest. So it's already a pretty shallow lake. But obviously, we rec we're it's been drying up a lot faster and this summer um, we actually recorded the lake's lowest level and we started measuring the lake's level in 1875 so been a pretty long time that we've been recording that and we recently just reached the lowest level so obviously we're seeing 
that kind of crisis happened, but also just a general Western water crisis all throughout the Western United States. We're seeing water levels drop dramatically in pretty much every state, including Colorado, Arizona, Nevada. So while this is a crisis for the Salt Lake Valley and Utah as a whole, it's also going on in the entire Western United States. I did read something, I think on the Tribune, it said um, about 40% of the Salt Lake has dried up since they started recording um, the measurements. Is this something that can be reversed or is this something that we're just trying to stop from progressing? Yeah, so unfortunately, um, we've really been able to, I want, I'll answer your question, but I want to start with this. Um, we've really been able to nail down two real causes to the Salt Lake drying up. One that I think a lot of people know about is climate change. And the other one's population growth in the Wasatch Front. Um, obviously, the Salt Lake City metropolitan area and the entire Wasatch Front is one of the fastest growing metropolitan and urban centers in the entire country. And when you have more people coming in, they're consuming more water and just more resources in general. So that's factor number one. And number two, obviously, is climate change, increased greenhouse gas emissions, particularly CO2. And unfortunately, those two causes, they're not going away. Um, for example, on climate change, if we stopped all domestic emissions today and even got our international emissions coming from places like China and India down, we would still see the shrinking of the Great Salt Lake like we are seeing today. So the way that we're going to solve this problem isn't by combating climate change, which I wish we could do that, but that's just not going to happen. The Salt Lake is going to continue drying up no matter what we do in that area. What we're going to have to look at, unfortunately, is taking water from other places in Utah or even throughout the entire country and bringing it into the Salt Lake Valley, which, you know, is an expensive process, but you know, that's going to be the only solution that a lot of people are seeing as even anywhere near viable. So the toxins that are in the bed of the Salt Lake, that is a concern as well. So are we going to be able to refill or at least like maintain the levels that it's at now to like yeah. keep those toxins covered? Or are we trying to like extract the toxins or where are we at with that? Yeah, so kind of, again... The Salt Lake Valley and is in a real unique position. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, droughts are happening all over the United States. But, you know, in the Salt Lake Valley, we face a really unique threat, threat because we have this huge, huge pool of arsenic underneath the Great Salt Lake. And as it's drying up, that arsenic can get released. So like you said, we have to we have to find a way to deal with that arsenic. And I'm really thankful that our great Senator Mitt Romney recently introduced a bill in the United States Senate that would authorize, I believe, around $10 billion for research into this issue alone. How do we deal with this arsenic? How do we trap it? How do we mitigate the effects it will have on the Salt Lake Valley? So really hoping the Senate can pass that bill soon so that we can get some resources into the area of research there. Because at this moment, I haven't really heard of any viable solutions. So really looking forward to seeing that bill get passed. Um, it's great that you brought up Romney as well. A lot of the times when we're talking about environmental issues, it's focused on the Democratic Party. The Republicans don't really like to talk about it. Either they deny climate change, they don't think it's one of their most important issues. How do you see us kind of coming together and realizing that like this is happening, this is affecting Utah, which will ultimately affect the whole nation? Um, how do you see us kind of like coming together and finding solutions to Utah and then like the whole country? 
Yeah, you you just talk. That's like my favorite thing to talk about. So I'm gonna go on for a while. Utah in particular is such a leader in this area. Um, our great congressman John Curtis, um, he's the, currently the chairman of the Conservative Climate Caucus. That's in the House of Representatives. It is the second largest caucus in the entire House of Representatives, made up of over 75 Republicans in the House who want to talk about climate change and want to come up with real solutions to it. So that's great. Second largest caucus in the House is all Republicans talking about climate change. So I think we're making real, real progress here. And then in the Senate, we have Mitt Romney, um, Senator Bill Cassidy talking about and taking really seriously the idea of a carbon price, a domestic carbon price coupled with a CBA, a carbon border adjustment, in my opinion, would be one of the best solutions to climate change. So again, we're seeing Republicans really tackle this issue like we haven't seen before. And I'm really optimistic for the future. Um, in terms of keeping the movement going, organizations like ACC, C3 Solutions, Republican EN, Press, a lot of these great, great conservative organizations. We're just seeing a lot of momentum here. I'm really optimistic for the future, and I think a lot of people should be as well. I think we're heading in the right direction in terms of climate change, especially on the Republican side of the aisle. And personally, I think that Republican solutions are better for the environment and better for combating climate change than any other solutions that have been proposed so far. So again, just really optimistic for the future. And I think we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, I have kind of two follow-up questions. I'll start with what you said about the Republican Party solutions being better. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between the two parties' approach on climate change and why you think one side is more beneficial? Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, throughout history, um, we've really seen that the way we get out of problems that are really massive like this one, that cross borders, um, cross cultures is through innovation. And I believe the Republican solutions on climate change really are catered around one thing, and that is spurring innovation. And I think that the Republican Party has been really, really good on emphasizing that these solutions to climate change are coming from the free market. They're not coming from a government program or another couple hundred million dollars that are going to some project that never really goes anywhere. I think Republicans have done a really good job there. And another thing is in all the above energy strategy, um, Republicans haven't been afraid to go to the energy sources that might not be as sexy as other ones like solar and wind. A lot of people like to talk about those. But here in the United States, domestic oil and natural gas is about 40% cleaner than its international alternative. If the United States were able to export its natural gas, which it has in plentiful to other countries, we would be having a much different conversation about climate change than we would be right now. And I think Republicans have been not afraid to come at this issue from a different angle. And I think that different angle so far has proven to be one that, again, is better for the country, better for the environment, and better for people. Perfect. And usually when you're talking about environmental policies, the Green New Deal comes up a lot. That's like the most household name when we're talking about climate change. Um, Do you see that as effective? That is like a Democratic Party kind of initiative. So do you think that's effective? Yeah, the funny thing about the Green New Deal is that it was actually never a bill. It was a basically a feeling of the house. So when it was introduced, it wasn't actually going to appropriate any funds for anything or actually really do anything. It was just a messaging bill. So to begin with, it's not a real solution. It's just, we want to look like we're doing something. That's quite literally what it was. But even if a lot of the things that the Green New Deal is talking about were implemented and actually we saw them come to fruition, it'd be too expensive. It would really, really cost 
the American people. And again, I think all climate issues and all climate change solutions that we talk about need to have people at the center of that. You know, I think the prosperity of man is very, very important. I think as a country, we should be really focused on, again, keeping the American people at the forefront of everything we do. And I don't see a Green New Deal type of solution, one, really being all that effective, and two, it's just not good for people. So the second largest caucus in the House, which is a conservative environmental caucus, conservative climate caucus. So they're obviously working on potential bills that could help the environment on the national level and potentially an international level. Um, Do we see any bipartisanship between how environmental issues are tackled? Yeah, so full disclosure on my work for Congressman John Curtis, and I have met several Democrat congressmen who are have come up to my boss and have said, you know, I love what you're doing on climate change. Keep doing what you're doing. I want to work with your caucus as much as I can. There have been several Democrats that I know of that have done that, and I think a lot of people on the other side of the aisle, even if um, they might feel that our solutions are a bit different than theirs, they're really excited to work with Congressman Curtis and his entire caucus. So I think there is real potential for a bipartisan solution to climate change. I think, again, a CBA, um, domestic price on carbon, that's been something that Democrats have really been on board with. And I think the Republican Party is slowly getting there. So we'll, we'll see what happens. That's super encouraging. And I think also um, in Utah, it's a little bit tough for maybe the more liberal leaning constituents to like see just because we have a lot of Republican representation. What like would you say to the people who don't really believe that the conservative movement is trying to fight climate change? I would just tell them to look around. I mean, especially in Utah, you got you've got Blake Moore, um, you got Burgess Owens, Chris Stewart, and John Curtis. They're, John, they're all in John Curtis's conservative climate caucus. Mitt Romney has been talking about climate change before it was cool for Republicans to talk about climate change. I would just tell anyone, like, look around, see the progress we're making. If someone is saying the Republicans don't care about climate change, they just have their eyes closed. How did you become interested in the environment? Yeah, so growing up, um, my dad has always my and my family as a whole has been pretty out, pretty outdoorsy you know for our vacations we've never i've never been to disneyland i've never been to disney world but i've been to plenty of national forests and national parks so i just kind of grew up in the outdoors but i was always a republican um been a proud republican my whole life and i'm kind of like benji who is the president of the acc the organization of which i'm a member of um i've always really cared about the environment but i've also been a republican and when benji started the American Conservation Coalition. It really filled a void that I saw as well at the time I was in high school. So not much I could do then, actually. No one should say that. You can always do something. But, you know, I've just always been one that cares about the environment, and I've also been a Republican. So this just worked well for me. Are you hopeful about the state of the Salt Lake? Do you think we'll find change um, Mm -hmm. and quick enough? Yeah, so, you know, I'm... Like I said, I'm pretty optimistic about our, a lot of our environmental and climate problems and, you know, potential solutions. But the Great Salt Lake is going to be a challenge. But i am really been encouraged to see even our state-level um, elected officials um, take this issue seriously. Recently, the Utah State Legislature released its top three priorities for this upcoming legislative session. And the number two issue was figuring out solutions for the Great Salt Lake. So... We're taking this seriously at the national level, the local level, and the state level. You know, again, this is going to take a lot of effort. And it's definitely one of those issues that's going to be tougher than others to solve. But again, I'm optimistic. I think everyone's taking this issue seriously. Just, you know, we're crossing party lines here. So I'm really hopeful.
you mentioned earlier that there are some, you know, more Democrat, more liberal leaning people, maybe in Salt Lake Valley or all Utah as a whole that really don't feel that Republicans are taking this issue seriously again. I would just tell you, open your eyes, look around. Republicans are taking this issue seriously. They want to have a seat at the table and, you know, give them that seat at the table. I think you need to, I think I've seen a lot of progress be made, especially in the last four or five years on this issue in the Republican party. And again, I would just be open to talking to a Republican about climate change. It's clear, at least in Utah, that climate change is on the minds of everybody. Some could even call it a bipartisan issue, which is something you don't hear often these days. However, the fate of the lake is still undecided. Talk is one thing, but action is needed. Only time can tell if that action will come. For Reed Nasser and Paige Nelson, I'm Norm. Thank you for listening.